So last class, we talked about, we finished off 1 Corinthians in terms of we got through chapter 16. There's something that I heard somebody say a while ago, and at first I was like, meh. Actually, I still don't know that I totally agree with it, but they were saying how the end of a lot of these books, and he was mentioning Romans specifically, was that he said it's the most important chapter. It was the last chapter. And he said, you read the stuff, and there's all these travel plans that Paul's setting up, and then there's these individuals he talks about who, you know, we don't know who they are. They've been long lost to history. And he said the reason he thought it was the most important was that it reminds us that this letter was a real letter written to real people dealing with real problems. So if you think of it as that a reminder, then it's like, okay, I guess that makes more sense. I'm not 100% certain this is the most important chapter, but I think it's, it's a good reminder about the fact that this is this wasn't just something made up. It's this kind of otherworldly account of something. It is an otherworldly account that shows us how we live in the real life and deals with real problems. One thing I was going to put a, uh, say a point of clarification to a week ago, I had said something about how people will take principles too far, and somebody was surprised by that. Well, I meant, I thought it was obvious, I meant people will say that they're taking the principles, and then they proceed to then violate the very principles they say. I also said after that, again, I thought this was, it was obvious, that some people will say, the only thing that matters is love. Well, that's true, actually. I mean, Jesus says, command number one, love God, command number two, love people. And on that hangs all of the law of the prophets. So that's true. But here's what I've noticed people do. And this is the problem I was talking about. It was people will say, you know, premise one, Jesus says we should love. That's the most important thing. Premise two, I think that love means you accept this. Okay, see, that's where it goes wrong. Okay, so if you're, if you're saying the thing that matters is Jesus' commandment to love... Well, then premise two should be, you have to love the way Jesus said to you love, right? You don't get to change the premise to what I think. And so that's kind of the back door for them to you know, bring in whatever. And so I, I thought that was obvious, apparently it was obvious. But, but I do think, I think principles cannot be taken too far by their very nature. I mean, that's just what they, by, by the definition, it is so fundamental that it's something that cannot be taken too far. All right. With that said, let's go ahead and start with prayer. friend that I hadn't talked to for years who had reached out to me and out of the cold and he told me he said he felt guilty about something he had done to me a while ago and honestly he told me he's like I, I didn't even remember what that was so I, it had been totally lost on me so obviously I wasn't too broken up about it but I could tell that it, it haunted him and he carried it for a while I want to tell you something about from something that happened years ago that I regret, that haunts me to this day. I remember one Sunday morning where we were, we had just gotten done with worship, and I, I was a teenager, and there was a person who was a few years older than me. I think he was in his early 20s at that point. And there was another teenager standing with me. And the other teenager started to mock the other, the other Christian. 
And he said, why do you talk like that? Why do you walk like that? You act like you're so gay. What's wrong with you? And he just kept going on and on about it. I didn't think much of it at the time. Years later, that person went to another congregation. And there he told them, he revealed that he had been dealing with same-sex attraction for years and that he needed help. And I thought back to that time and I thought, how much that must have hurt to have somebody mock him in the assembly by a fellow Christian. I think that makes it worse. And then the second thing that I thought was that we failed him. He didn't come to us. We were not his first resort. He never came to us. He came to somebody else. And the good news is that he is a success story. He is what Matthew, what, what Jesus talked about in Matthew 19 as a, a eunuch for the kingdom. He lived his life faithfully. To this day, he's, he's a faithful follower of Jesus. And when I think about that, I think, would I have been willing to go, if I had had same-sex attraction, and gone to the church as a first resort? And honestly, I don't know that I would have. And partially because of that conversation. Like, I would think that that's what people were going to treat me if I came out and said I needed help. And so I've been thinking about that for years. And the thing that I keep coming back to is, how do we make a church where I would be comfortable asking for help if I had had same-sex attraction? And I'm mentioning all this because if you look in the New Testament and you look for the word homosexual, you're going to find those three texts that refer to homosexuality. Now, homosexuality, you got to understand that the, the Greek word means homosexual behavior. That's sometimes lost in translation because the English word is a little bit different. But you're going to find 1 Corinthians is one of those three. And when I, when I read about how people either support, try to support same-sex sexual activity via the Bible or, or talk about it at all, they tend to use 1 Corinthians a lot. So let's, I want to talk about that today, take up that question. I'm going to kick us off here with a video, and I'll give you a little bit of background on it. This video comes from a woman named Rosaria Betterfield, and she was a lesbian professor in, deep in the LGBT community. And she had written an article, and in this article she said that this particular Christian group she was writing against were basically terrorists, is what she said. And so she started getting all this mail. And she put, she had two little areas where she put the mail. She put the people who said, we love everything you said and we agree with you and they're kind in one bucket. And then the ones that said, we disagree with you and you're, you're awful, and put them in the other bucket. So she kept doing this and then she got a letter that didn't fit either of them. And it came from this guy who was a preacher and he, he didn't act hateful, but he pushed back on her and he asked her a lot of questions. So she just crumpled it up because she couldn't put, it, couldn't put it in her filing system. So she just threw it away. And then it, it kind of haunted her, so she pulled it back out and decided that she was going to do a research project. She was going to talk to him and use him as a kind of like a student that would go and do her research for her. So she goes and talks to him. And after several years, she changes her position and becomes a Christian. So this, in this video, she's going to refer to this, but she had to figure out what to do because she's this English professor deep in the LGBT community and how does she extract herself from this without doing a lot of damage? And she's, she's having to make all these decisions while being a new Christian. So she, she'll actually refer to that.
and nurture me and love me and learn from there. And I learned that the biggest sin in my life was unbelief, not homosexuality. I learned that Jesus, uh, that Jesus, the blood of Jesus covered the sin not only of my uh, enormous legacy of sexual uh, lust and other things, but also my tepid relationship to the Bible. And, um, and I just fell in love more and more with Jesus and with this church because of the way that Christians could stand with me and weep with me and walk with me and not think that suddenly I was going to be all cleaned up. Because you know what? They were all cleaned up. All right, so what stood out to you about that? Jesse? I mean, if you look at 1 Corinthians, you see people who are not all cleaned up. And Paul, I mean, he says in there, such were some of you. Some of them had to deal with homosexuality. It's not like it just went away as soon as you became a Christian. Oh, got that behind us, right? It doesn't work like that. Yeah. She said the biggest sin of my life is unbelief, not homosexuality. And I think if I could convince myself that every sinner's biggest problem is unbelief, it would be a lot easier to talk to them about Jesus. I, you know, she, and she has, I've read several of her books and, and listened to her talks, and she gave, I would say, is the best exposition of Romans 1 I've ever seen. And the reason I think that she gave such a detailed description of it was because she was reading Romans 1 before she was even a Christian. She's an English professor, right? So she knows how to read. And she kept reading this, and then she realized that, you remember, she, she said, I felt like my heart wasn't into it when she left her, her lesbian lover. What she means by that is that. She said, I read Romans 1 and I feel like I'm just supposed to feel like this is an abomination. She says, but I don't feel like it. But then she logically came around to know it. And then she realizes that when Paul says that people fall into homosexual behavior, he says that not at the beginning. He says it's the end of a chain. The end of the chain and the chain starts with people saying that they don't show gratitude to God and they don't acknowledge God. Right? That's the start, and everything else flows from that. I, of course, I, I don't think it's just homosexual behavior that flows from that. I just think it's one of the best examples, of it, or most obvious examples of it. Yes, Katrina. Uh, the same, same thing stood out to me. I think it, the way she talked about how um, they loved her and how she was more and more falling in love with Jesus. That's what propels that, that those feelings of and inquiry of what am I doing? What do I need to be doing? And then that proposal as to like, why do you want to 
Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we've got to fill that vacuum, not just make a vacuum. Yes? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. If there was one thing in there that it, I had the same reaction, like the first time I was like, I, is, that, is that right? But then the more I thought about it, I think they called it correctly. They knew. She had already given these things up. So she had already made a decision. She wasn't mourning in the sense of like, oh, I wish I could go back and have that. She'd already made that commitment, and she made a commitment where she had to sacrifice a lot. So it was, it was clear she had made a real commitment. And then, it, then I think that mourning makes a little bit more sense. And then... Uh, it changes its color when you realize that she's already dedicated herself to faithfulness. Josh? This idea of the Christians reacting the way that she describes sounds so easy, but it's really hard. It, it takes having an awareness of the types of struggles or pains or difficulties that a person is going through. It doesn't just have to be this case. It can be any, any sense that Yeah, and that, that, that's a good point. When she, the person who converted her was this preacher, and she said that she was surprised by him. She said vulnerability. The first time she met, she's like, oh, he does not fit what I thought Christians were supposed to do. And he, she said one of the things that really stood out to her was he prayed that first night when he had invited her over. He didn't act like she was gross or disgusting because she... And in the prayer, he prayed specifically for sins that he was struggling with. And she thought, wow, that's, she, he was just very vulnerable with her. And she's like, I had not seen that before. Yes, right. Sometimes we act like everything's as simple as a decision. It is, unless it's something you're struggling with. <laughs> yes. Yeah, th- this is true. This is very true. Yeah, that cleanup effort takes a while. Like, technically, our cleanup efforts our entire life. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's on. I think they are onto something there, and, and a couple ways. One is that there's. I was a book I was reading, and the guy was saying he was from a, a person who has same-sex attraction but is faithful to Jesus. And he pointed out. He said, when you when you're dealing with somebody like that, you need to figure out what actually matters and what's just optics, and you need to parse them differently. He said, don't change the way change the way that they talk. If you mean just like the, well, I'm talking. What's well, not a scriptural thing? It doesn't matter like that, or the 
change the way they dress if it's just because you don't like it. That stuff doesn't matter. You've got to focus on what actually matters. And the other cases I've seen is, I think there, I've seen people react poorly to sin when it was revealed, even though the person was repentant, but I think it was because it, it, they felt like it brought them shame. Okay, but that, I'm not, that's not the right react, that's not the right reason to have a reaction to it. Jesse. Um, I really like that. I think it's something that I would and am working to kind of like overcome because as I was growing up, I was abstained from the appearance of evil. That's a good principle, but there's that mechanism in me when it's like you shouldn't get involved because that might not look great. And so I appreciate the comment about sometimes you have to you have to not worry about that. Well, think about that, because say, I don't know, let's say I was a Jew in the first century, and I'm dealing with this church, it, just to say it happens to be in a place called Corinth, and they've got some real problems. Why not get involved? Would I avoid getting involved because I feel like it makes me dirty, or because that's what, look what people are going to think of me. You look at the church at Corinth, you could see, someone could argue that it would reflect back on Paul. I'm not saying I could argue it correctly, I'm just saying some could say that. And Paul was willing to get his hands dirty. I think this has kind of been said in different ways. Um, but I think what I noticed out of the video was um, the group that she was involved with, their love for Jesus was evident to her, and she fell in love with Jesus. And so if we could have that same love Yeah, that, I agree. There's a certain thing, I've heard this phrase, and I found it, it's so true for many, many things. He said, there's certain things that are better caught than taught. He's not saying you don't teach. He's just saying it has to be a little bit more than that. And, and real love for Jesus, you can feel that in others, and it, it kind of gets a little infectious. And that actually fits Romans 1, too. That was the root of the problem, was that people were not giving, acknowledging God and giving gratitude to him. It's, just, it's literally giving thanks to him, gratitude. Well, gratitude makes a lot of sense, because you think about, why do we love Jesus so much? Gratitude's a big driver for it. Yes? Um, it kind of relates to optics. I think sometimes um, I struggle with this idea of visible sins versus non-visible sins. So the ones that are um, easy to see seem worse. Because the ones that we keep to ourselves are not not visible. And so maybe they're not quite so sinful. And and I think that is something that maybe struggles sometimes. I 100% agree with you. I have to realize that I have sin before I can ever start to talk to someone else about what they're struggling with. Yeah, and if you go through where Paul includes sin lists, we tend to focus on some of those in the sin list, which is a little bit ironic, because it's a whole list. that He's listed them out, and yet we pick out a couple, we notice them. It's like, oh, why is gossip in there? That doesn't feel like a big deal, does it? It makes the list some cases, you know? Here's one that troubles me. From what I can tell, and I already mentioned this in the class, from what I can tell, it's roughly somewhere about 10 times to 1 that Jesus mentions greed over mentions sexual sins. 
Who here has ever said, I think I'm struggling with greed? That worries me. That really troubles me. I was talking to somebody who stayed with us recently, and I was like, you know, that really troubles me. He starts, and he starts doing the same things like, well, yeah, well, maybe I'm struggling with it. I hadn't really thought about it. What does it even look like? We see it in the, op- the extremes where it looks ugly, but what if it doesn't look ugly? It could just be as ugly. We just can't see it. Yes, ma'am. Following your comment about the church and Corinth and how the Jewish would struggle with that, but then you go back to the very beginning of Paul's letter. He said, to the church of God who is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, call us saints with all who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It's like, are you sure you're talking about the same group of people? You know, and so I think by the time we get to the end of it, we forget the beginning of it, that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to encourage and edify and as uh, Hebrews 10 24, spur one another to good blood and good works. So that's our place in this. But you don't see Paul, it doesn't feel like Paul is being dealing with the same set of people that he starts with and ends with, but he is. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, I, I, the word for sanctified is the word, same word for holy. I mean, it's the same, that's what the word means. And it's shocking. In fact, it was shocking enough when he said that. I was like, you know, I mean, before I say something, I need to check. So I checked the Greek New Testament just to make sure it is the word holy, only because it seems so surprising he would open with that, given all the problems they have. Yes. Kind of, in my mind, mulling all this over, the optics, one thing shut it out being so consumed with the love of Jesus and wanting to be like him. It kind of seems to me that Jesus was completely honest about sin, whether it was the visual sin or the non-visual sin, and our need for him. And it kind of to me goes back to our humility. That woman, that woman in the yoga across me a lot because of her humility to completely say, Look, this is how it was, this is how people treated me. And to me, that seems like they have the humility to admit, yes, we're all sinners, we all need Jesus. And in a way, that's why the Pharisees hated him so much, because he was completely honest about that. He's like, no, that they were kind of like, no, you're not upholding the image here that they wanted. And to me, it kind of goes back to all of us being as completely honest. Are we just upholding an image for the congregation? Are we being completely honest about how we all sin, um, how we all need Jesus? Do we welcome everyone to follow Jesus the same way? That type of thing. Yeah, now what I like about Jesus, he's, he's very open and honest about sin. But he's also mature about it. Because I think sometimes we think that having this very emotional, negative reaction shows our hatred for sin. But I, I found, I'll show you an observation I've noticed here. Is that I've seen people who have a very emotional reaction to something. And, and then you have, say, a person one has a very emotional reaction to something, very negative. And then you have a second person which doesn't handle it as, as Reactive with it. They don't seem to be emotional about it, but they're very practical about it. I would have thought that the person who handled it emotionally and kind of reacted like that would have been the one who 
holds a harder view on that sin, I have noticed that in my, in my history is that the person over there emotionally active was more likely to bounce to saying it was to the opposite extreme than the person who was more, less reactive but more logical about it. That's always puzzled me. But then again, maybe that makes sense because maybe that person holds that view because of more emotional reasons versus logical reasons. Right? If you base it on the text, the text doesn't move, but emotions move. And so maybe that's why people flop and, and Jesus had this practical nature about it. Yes. Well, the thing that impressed me was that I heard some brain. You know, we're talking about this one side, there's a whole other dynamic of what it took for her to, feel, to make that change of her lifestyle. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And how does she do this when she's she's deep in that community? Right? It's it's easier for me, not deep in that community, to hold my a faithful view on Jesus' view on sexuality, it is way harder for her to figure out how to do that with grace when they're expecting her. And they felt hurt when they, they felt, but she didn't use that word betrayed because of that. Yes, Greg. Yeah, we already mentioned the, the list that he gives in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 as containing all kinds of things. Like, he starts with sexual immorality, but he ends it with things like greed and swimmers. But he starts by saying, don't be deceived, which is a natural tent. Like, there, you're going to encounter people who are going to convince you that these things are okay. And they'll find compelling reasons, or seemingly compelling reasons. We may even tell ourselves, don't we? Lies to convince us why what we're doing is, is acceptable. And he says, don't, don't be tricked, don't be deceived. Um, God's not mocked here. Um, these things are are serious, but I do very much appreciate um, some of the things that have been said, where God views it all as this is all stuff that we need to put away. All of it. Um, let's not hyper-focus on, on one. Let's hyper-focus on all. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit. So that's, what, what, what do I need to get out of my life? What, what do I need to, to look across at the brothers and sisters and say, yeah, seeing this behavior, let's work together, let's, let's get this out of our lives using the blood of Jesus. Right, I, I agree, especially when, like I said, it's, there's that catch-all, the unrighteous, oh, okay, but that, that captures a lot of things, but things, things like greed, I think, are really tricky, too, because how do you know when it's crossed that line? It's really easy to say, hey, listen, I'm not having, I'm not a, committing adultery, one and done, there we go. Of course, when you get to lust, well, okay, lust is a little more difficult to put in a nice, nice little box. Greed is really hard to put in a nice little box. I know you've crossed that line. Yes? So, I think it's interesting, um, as one who has lived through this in, in, in their family, um, I think that until, until recently, in my family, maybe within the last few years, uh, the religious world in general has elevated the sin to be the most great sin that someone could commit. Maybe even about murder, because it, it, it relates to a lifestyle, right? And um, I, I think that we've probably done that because maybe we focus on, and maybe not consciously or maybe we won't, we won't say it verbally, but we focus on the physical aspect of this sin and how despicable that may be to me in my mind and what I envision in my mind, right? And 
said it, but I think she brought up, she, she brought up her feelings and, and what she felt in her heart and the fact that um, we would not relate that same thing to, I'll just say, heterosexual, right? We, we would not relate that same thing to heterosexual that we immediately relate everything to the physical. And, and we would acknowledge, yes, I have feelings as a man for a woman, I have feelings for a woman. But in same sex, I think that we finally are starting to realize, you know what, these feelings that they have are true. These feelings are in them and we and they have to acknowledge that and have to try to figure out what is it, not, not that it causes that, I don't even know that that makes a difference, but, but, but what is it or how can we then um, have a relationship with Christ and still deal with those feelings? Because there's a good chance that those feelings will never leave that person, right? And so um, I think that we, our focus has always been sin, 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 just say no, just turn away, just... You know, if you're a man and you've got same sex attraction, just start focusing on women. Well, that's that's stupid and that's crazy. That, that's just not going to happen. Instead of, we talk about this, the love of Christ. What can Christ do? Um, you know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And what was that thorn in the flesh? We don't know. But maybe this is your thorn in the flesh. Maybe it's something that you can write and bring them in that area. And I think it best, maybe for such a time as this, why you're here and, and, and what can you do? So I think that we finally started to to change that that um, paradigm a little bit and how we look and how we approach. But I think we still have a long way to go to be able to reach the people like we Yeah, we we make common sense distinctions that I think we then abandon on this. We recognize that we don't expect somebody just to pray a prayer and they'll never have to deal with lust again. We recognize it's something they have to deal with possibly for their entire life. So why can we not make that same distinction here and say they can still be faithful, but it doesn't mean you can just pray a prayer and have it go away. It just doesn't work like that. And you said something about how sometimes we almost seem to elevate murder over that. Christopher Yuan, he wrote this really good book. He's actually written several books. But he, he did a talk. He's a, he's a follower of Jesus, but he has same-sex attraction. He said in one of his talks, this guy came to him after, after the talk and he had tears in his eyes. And the guy said that he was a former veteran he said, when I heard you were going to talk about same-sex attraction, he said, if I was in Vietnam and I knew a guy who had same-sex attraction, I would have shot him in the back. And then as he heard the talk, he realized, I just justified murder in my head over that. And, and the person's faithful, right? And, he's like, I, and so he asked, he came to Christopher after, he said, would you pray for me? And, and Christopher did. Oh, I'm, I think you're on to something there.
Yeah, there's a, I heard a quote. And the guy said, Jesus, if he's only an example, we did replace these batteries. So that's good. I'm going to put it on the outside. Maybe it's just not getting a good, good signal. Okay. Jesus is only an example to you will crush you because you're never going to match up. But Jesus as the lamb, that's the only way forward. And I, I think they're on to something there. That's a good point, because if you view, you can easily fall into a trap if you're not careful, where Jesus becomes a motivational speaker or a life coach or a psychologist to you, and Jesus is way bigger than that, right? And this kind of goes back to, I think, Sarah's point about how he called out sin, and the sin there is not just the sins of the individual things you do wrong, it's that deeper thing inside of you that's distorted, that causes you to do those sins, and that's actually the root of all these problems. Chris. So I wonder what the result would have been if it had been me or you or any one of us talking to that woman instead of that. What would my approach have resulted in if I'd been, I mean, his approach, I think, just includes something that is hard to quantify, and that is the love of Christ. That is the gospel. If you approach that from you know, just reading the list and while you're in that list, you need to get out of that list of bad things. I don't think that would, I mean, she already knew the list. <laughs> she already knew the rule. It was that love that we need to be incorporating in all of these situations with every type of sin and with every person instead of just, like some have been saying, just commanding to, you know, change your, change your action and change to some other thing to fill that spot or something like that. So it's pretty convicting thinking about what would have been the result. Yeah, that is a good point because I I've thought about how I would have dealt with if I if we didn't have First Corinthians, let's just say the letter never existed, and I was in the situation dealing with a church that had all the problems that the good Corinth had, how would I have written them? And frankly, I don't think I would have written a letter like First Corinthians. 
which is my problem. It probably would have been a very short letter. Let's just put it that way. If there would have been a letter at all, I'd be like, look at these people. That's not a faithful church. It'd be easy just to write them off. But getting involved is much harder. But that's, it's like you said, I, it's easier to debug someone's sin and just have a one and done than it is to get involved and figure out how do, how do you get somebody to have a bigger love than the things they already love that are bigger than those sins. That's tough. That's a good point. And I like that you made a sports analogy. I'm not into sports at all. But that wouldn't make sense to me. So if we took that further, take it to the next step, then I'm not getting what I need out of the church, I think, if I'm not allowing people to help me through my temptations and my difficulties. I think that would, by extension, right? If, if I'm struggling with them, I need to reach out. With Joshua, I need to be vulnerable about them. Yes. Yeah, that, I, I, that really resonates with me. And I think that was one of the things that resonated with her with this preacher, too, because she said that he, he, he didn't follow the, I, can't, I think she called it the evangelical playbook. He didn't share Jesus with her on that first meeting. And she was surprised by this because she expected he would do a one and done, well, you should accept Jesus, and, and then just kind of move on. Instead, 
it was obvious to her he meant for this to be a long-term conversation. And it took years before she changed her opinion. So he was in there for the long term. Bob? Yeah, back to that point uh, in, in time of her history. Uh, the fact that the first thing out of his mouth in the prayer was not about her and her problems, but his problems. You know, he was praying for himself. He realized what we all need to realize is that we're broken. We've been broken a long time. We may be striving to serve Jesus and to love him, but we're still broken. And that's the way he chose us. And we forget that when it comes to others. Yeah. I, I remember Paul Earnhardt years ago in a gospel meeting, he said, we have to remember, the church is a hospital for recovering sinners, not the museum of the faithful. I think he's right. Uh, somebody, yes, correct. Or no, yes, Julia. I think there's a lot of beauty and patience she's having with the fact that it was going to be an overnight change too. For the example that she was showing to her whole community, to the LGBTQ plus community of if she had just become a Christian and dropped them off the face of the planet, that wouldn't be showing the love of Christ. And so the fact that she had the respect for their souls to stay in it and to figure out what her new role in that was going to be, and it held so much more power than just, and she would have to change, obviously, yes, the acceptance of it, and like her walk in it, it would look different. But if she just left them and ran off to become a Christian, Yeah, and it would have been easier in many cases for her just to drop them and just move on. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's true, especially when there's an image, unfortunately, that people have of Christians, of which some of it is true, and some of it is because they focus on certain elements. And this would have just fit. It's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I would have expected now that she's a Christian, right? Good point. Yes? I uh, just recently read a few He does call on the carpet sometimes, but um, the, the means that he's willing to go to to make sure that it's not unintentionally causing offense while trying to get them what they need. But then he does the same thing with Gentiles. You know, he, he goes to their, um, their gathering places and commends them for their idolatry of massive idols. I see that you're very religious. But then he tells them what they need. Um, he, he does a great job, and his example is just profound of that, that fine line of Yep. There's a, a statement I heard a while ago. It says, make the gospel as offensive as it needs to be, but no further. Right? If they're just offended because they don't like the message of Jesus, that's not your problem. If they're offended because of the way you delivered it, that's your problem. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, one thing I'll mention, too, is that anytime you, if you talk about the subject, one of the difficulties here is the definition of words. 
It's really tricky. And like if you look at the, and I, I mentioned this, if you look in the Greek, those two words that refer to homosexuality in First Corinthians, and those words, it's and the reason there's two of them because Paul includes two groups in First Corinthians chapter six. The reason is it's because Roman law distinguished between two different types. So he's just acknowledging there's two different types and he's calling out both of them. But both of them, it is very clear that it means same-sex sexual activity. And you can see this in modern translations. The modern translations are starting to move away from just translating it homosexual. And they'll use a much longer phrase that says homosexual activity. Some will even collapse the two words, the two different words for homosexuality, into a single phrase. Because we don't draw a distinction today in, in law. So it, it's kind of lost a little bit on us. Like the, the first one's almost worse because the first word in there is Malakoi is sometimes translated as effeminate. And I, that can easily give you the wrong sense. It's like, oh, so if a guy doesn't like to eat steak and rebuild turbo diesels, I guess that's a problem. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about, though. There's a lot of history there about what that word means. So we, we know that's not what he's talking about here. And that's the bell. When you get to the English word homosexual, today that oftentimes just means whether or not you have same-sex attraction, regardless of behavior. And the words relatively new in the history of English came out in 1869, 1870 from a psychologist. So that's all the time we got. Thanks, y'all. Oh, next week. Did I just get cut off? Okay. Uh, we're going to do the review. So I'll send out an email, but then, then we'll be done. <laughs>